0: Welcome everyone to the Capital Press Club podcast series. I'm your host and CPC president, Dr. Colin Campbell. I'm really excited that all of you could be here and listen to this podcast. Our guest is award-winning journalist Richard Prince, who writes as the main columnist for Journalisms. It's a news column on diversity issues in news media. He's won multiple awards, including several from the National Association of Black Journalists and many more. And I would just like to welcome Richard Prince to the podcast series. Welcome, sir. Great to be here. Thank you. Yeah, Richard, you know, definitely a veteran journalist. You have so many accolades behind your name. How did you first get started in journalism?
1: (laughs) Uh, well, I think I've always been in journalism, even as a student um, in uh, in junior high school, uh, and then I worked on the school paper in uh, in high school, and uh, as well as in college, and then I uh, went out into the world, of professional journalism uh, up in New. York. I was I was I'm from New York, uh, and I was in uh, working at the at the New York Star Ledger um uh on the weekends when they had their riot in the late sixties, nineteen sixty-seven. And then I came to DC in nineteen sixty eight after DC had its riot. So I I've been f have been fi was uh, in that area you just uh you know it was it was kind of explosive and uh uh the the uh, news industry was was part of the broader picture in that we had to, to integrate and uh um, uh, uh, make sure that that uh, uh, we heeded the demands of the communities which were demanding better coverage, more people of color uh, working there. And uh, that led to uh, our, uh, our, at the Washington Post, our filing of a complaint uh, with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in 1972. And uh, then three years later, the NABJ was formed. And I think that the, the WABJ, the Washington Association, was formed around this about a year earlier, I believe, um, a year or so earlier, 1975. And so it's been, you know, this has been, uh, we've, we've had a heck of a ride from, from then till now. All of our objectives, of course, have not been met. But we keep on pushing. And now we have more people to uh, as part of the effort. And we have uh, racial reckoning going on now in the news industry as well as in the country itself. So we've we've made even more progress. But as they always say, there's still more to be done.
0: That's right. One of the things that I enjoy talking to you about is just some of your history when it comes to journalism. Now you made several decades sound like just a a snap of the fingers. And in between that, there has been so much that you have been intimately involved in. One of the things that I'd like our audience to know is that when you talked about filing the complaint uh, against the Washington Post, I believe, you were part of the Metro 7. And that was a groundbreaking uh, group of, of people who were discussing some of the, the disparities that they were facing in one of the biggest news circulations in the country. Not only that, Around the time that you were really, uh, you said you've always been a journalist, but I'm sure your interest was even more piqued around the times of the riots that you talked about in the late 60s. That was the same time as the Kerner Commission Report was coming out and talking disparities in journalism news coverage. And you were right there on the front lines. I don't even know where to begin with you right now, actually, but if you could (laughs) tell us a little bit about, you know, I get excited to talk to you because you know the history of, of journalism in this country very Intimately, you've been involved in it, and you have a, a large perspective on it. I, I guess I would start with the Kerner Commission. as something that you have very vast knowledge of. Could you tell our audience a little bit about it and why it's so relevant today?
1: Well, the Kerner Commission uh, was formed by uh, President Lyndon Johnson after the riots of, the, of 1967, and they made a report in 1968. Johnson wanted to find out, wanted this commission to find out um, what were the causes of the riots. And he suspected the communists were behind it. This was at the height of the Cold War. And then the commission came back and said, no, the communists weren't behind it. It was our own, the conditions that uh, that, um, African-Americans were facing. Uh, And one of the chapters was specifically devoted to the news media saying that they view the uh their coverage through the lens of white men and that they needed to broaden that lens uh because they were presenting a distorted picture and so uh a lot of american news consumers were surprised when uh these uh these rebellions or disturbances whatever you want to call them uh erupted because they were not since, since what was going on was not really um, being covered uh, properly, uh, that they had no idea that, you know, of what um, what the conditions were like. Uh, now, I will point out that all this did not start in the late 60s. We just had, we have a, a group that we call the Journalism's Roundtable, where uh, it's now being held by Zoom, but, uh, our, our most recent one which was uh, on december the 12th which can be accessed by the way we have we video recorded it and it's on the journalism's journal Hyphenisms.com isms.com uh web page uh we we brought in the authors of a new book that is titled journalism uh, and jim crow and they discussed there the, the 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 blatant racism that existed in the news media uh up until way up in the early part of this century, all through the last century, and you might uh, some some of the of the viewers of this might be familiar with the um, uh, Wilmington Riots of 1898. Uh, uh, Wilming- that's Wilmington, North Carolina, and there, what happened was that um, uh, black people were making progress in that town. There was a multiracial uh, government, city government. But white people became more and more upset by this this fact. And so they burned down the black newspaper and they chased out all of the uh, black office holders uh, who fled to other places. And this was very, if you look at what happened, it's a very a very uh, similar to what happened here in D.C. on January 6th. So that was just one example of, of the kinds of things that were going on um, uh, before we, we reached the 1960s. And we, of course, had the black press and people like Ida B. Wells and W.E.B. Du Bois of the crisis who were fighting all of this. And so what their book was talking about and what we uh, we had several veterans who were a part of the call uh, were, were talking about was um, how uh, the, the black press was so essential in those days to tell a real story. And then, when we had people who were just trying to describe uh, what was happening in those times, they had to turn to the black press because they were telling what was really going on. A lot of the white press uh, was ignoring it or distorting. In fact, they had a reporter from the Washington Post who was down in Wilmington there in 1898, and he marched with the white supremacists. He was he was at the head of the parade, and he was he was he was uh, sending back dispatches. Uh, that favored the white supremacists. And uh, as the state of uh, North Carolina pointed out uh, when they recapped all of this, uh, having a distorted picture going back to Washington, D.C. meant that the people in Congress and, and the White House did not have a full picture of what was going on. And therefore, they did not send federal troops or do uh, take other measures that might have you know, averted that situation. So there's a lot of history with with newspapers and and even uh, broadcasters uh, and uh, people of color, particularly African-Americans, and the need to integrate and and be more accurate in the story they tell of
0: what was going on in the United States. Yeah. And and in addition to that, you were already facing lots of discrimination at the Washington Post as well. Tell us how the the Metro 7 played into what was going on around that time and some of the disparities that were being faced racially in news media and particularly at the Washington Post.
1: Well, the Washington Post, uh, I have to give them credit because they had us there in the first place. The Washington Post was considered a uh, liberal newspaper, and the uh, the the Metro Seven began organizing. uh, Just actually started off as nine people. Uh, When we started comparing notes, you know, why was why was the Shirley Chisholm campaign not being covered? Uh, Why did they close the Africa Bureau? Uh, Why did the people who are running the the desk uh, for, for covered, covering the District of Columbia, actually living in, in Maryland and Virginia. Um, and specific things were happening to each of us, uh, and that caused us to uh, draw up, a. Uh, we started off with 20 questions, and on the same journalisms.com website, you can see all the documents that went forward between uh, the uh, nine and then uh, eight and then seven of us, and Ben Bradley, who was the editor there uh, at the time, uh, we retained uh, we retained he did a pro bono uh, Clifford Alexander as our lawyer and Cliff Alexander had been Secretary of the Army, but more importantly more relevant to this discussion. he had chaired the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, so we knew all about the use of goals and timetables, and that's what we wanted. Uh, we wanted some you know concrete goals and timetables for achieving progress in terms of, uh, black hiring and promotions. And that's what
0: year are we small. talking about? Richard? 1972. 1970.
1: 1972. Okay. That was the year I was the presidential election year. And that's why I mentioned Shirley Chisholm. She became the first black woman to run for president of a major party. Uh, right. and, uh, that, that was all happening in 1972. Uh, so that's what happened. The, the, the post, uh, resisted, uh, uh, what uh, Brent Bradley said, uh, uh, the only quota we're going to have here is a quota on quality. Uh, and the word quota was a big bug, uh, bugaboo at that time. And so we used that. Um, and our argument was, you know, you, you've got to do something to measure your progress. And that's what goals and timetables is all about. People have goals and timetables for profits and, and other kind of achievements. Why not have it for hiring? Uh, and promoting people of color, uh, so the um, the uh, Equal Employment Opportunity Commission (EEOC) found that we did have a case to proceed, but that would have required uh, more money than we had. Uh, Chris, uh, Cliff Alexander was um, was working pro bono for us, but uh, we didn't have the money to go to court and, and, and go through a whole lawsuit. And the Post did, but the benefit of the, uh, the Metro Seven and that case was that they were, you know, there were actions that the Post took in order to try to, you know, to show good faith or to mollify us. But more, more importantly, perhaps, is that it inspired people at other news organizations, from CBS to New York Times, New York Daily News, to undertake similar challenges at their news organizations. And not, we're not just talking about African-Americans, but women became involved as well at the Post and elsewhere. And a lot of those, uh, Other challenges succeeded um, uh, much, much more greatly than we did. In fact, I think there was a $4 million settlement at the New York Daily News. So, um, you know, as as, as I say, a luta continua, you know, (laughs) the struggle struggle continues. We had that suit. But, you know, of course, things did not end there in 1972, 1975, NABJ was formed, WABJ was formed. And, uh, they pressed the cause and, you know, it went on and on. And, and uh, the, uh, the mainstream media organizations, uh, such as the American society of news editors, uh, fixed a goal, uh, uh that they would have parity with the number of people of color in the general population and American newsrooms by the year 2000. So that was their goal. They didn't meet it. They said it was aspirational and now it's been reset for 2025. And uh, we'll see if they meet it there. The, the next big thing that happened along those lines was the George Floyd uh, situation, George Floyd, the police murder of George Floyd, which prompted a racial reckoning in the country that was still, uh, 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 still going on, in which a lot of uh, news organizations uh, realized that they really need to step up their game in terms of diversity, and began, you know, hiring, uh, appointing diversity officers, and improving their coverage. And so we'll, we'll, we'll see where all that ends up.
0: Yeah, a prognostic, a prognostication, if you will. What do you think? You said twenty twenty five is their goal. How does it right. look now? What do you think?
1: Well, they're not there, uh, and um, mm. but there are a lot of bright spots. Uh, one of the things that's happened in the meantime is that the the, the economy. Uh, intervened and the internet intervened and the the rise of the internet uh, was a big blow to print publications because uh, it's not not necessarily because they stole readers away but they stole advertisers away and so mm-hmm. that meant that they had to be more layoffs and a lot of newspapers and news organizations were so busy trying to be trying to stay afloat that diversity was put on the on the back burner uh, now, uh, we have a lot of organizations, though, that have, as I said, they've stepped their game. Uh, the Gannett Company is one that has, says that we are going to meet that goal um, of 2025. And now, around the country, you do see people of color being appointed to uh, top editor's roles in several newspapers. We just had Kevin Merida appointed uh, editor of the LA Times a lot of black women, uh, appointed, uh, within Gannett and also outside of Kinnett, such as McClatchy, Monica Richardson at the Miami Herald, Raina Cash at, uh, at the, um, Charlotte Observer. And, uh, Dean Baquet is, is the editor of the New York times. Although that took place before this most recent reckoning. So there has been progress and, and, yeah, uh, you, know, you do see things and uh, articles on the paper that maybe you would not have seen before, uh, and, and people being, I think one of the other things that's, that, that's uh, very important to people of color who work in these newsrooms is the change in the climate, uh, the sense that they are being listened to. They're at the table and that they, you know, they, they're not just being overlooked. And I think there's more of that now. And I think that's definitely progress. How long it's going to last, we don't know. But uh, once you, once you get people at the top it's harder to, you know, to, to, uh, to turn back.
0: Yeah, one of the things that we are seeing also more of, instead of waiting for corporate media to put us in positions where we should be, but people are also starting their own publications, their own avenues and their own conduits in which to exchange information and share information, something that is very familiar to you. So how did you start Journalism's And tell me about the purpose of it, which we did talk about a little bit, is about the diversity. But how is that bringing awareness to the public about what should be happening in our newsrooms and what's happening in the media landscape? That's a good question.
1: (laughs) Well, it started as a column in the the, the NAB Journal, which was a, a publication of the National Association of Black Journalists. And the word, the reason it's hyphenated, journal hyphenisms, is because the journal part of it comes from the NABJ Journal. And uh, that appeared in the print publication of the NABJ Journal until about, uh, let's see, it started in 1991, and it went on through the 90s, I believe. And then in 2002, the Maynard Institute uh, for Journalism Education, which started in about that same 1977 era, um, and who that exists to train uh, uh, journals of color. They said that their purpose is to make, to eliminate the phrase can't find anybody qualified. And uh, Dory Maynard, who was the uh, daughter of the founders, uh, Nate, Bob Maynard and Nancy Maynard said, well, you know, what's missing. There are all these media columns that I see online. And one in particular was popular at the time called uh, uh Jimmy by Jim Romanesco, Uh, but they don't have, you know, information about us and about diversity. So we need to have somebody who is filling in that gap. And so they asked me to do that and um, uh, I did. And so instead of just writing about, uh, primarily about black people, uh, it was broadened to diversity in general, uh, racial diversity that is, so that what was going on with Native Americans Asian Americans, Latinos uh, were were covered as well as, as African Americans. And um, uh, that started in 2002, as I said. And then in around 2016, uh, we started went to our own website, which is what which exists now, Journal Ivanisms. And, uh, uh, and um, you know, the issues are still the same, but the the way we have our influence is not directly to the public, Uh, although the public is certain, can certainly read and follow, but we target um, other journalists and particularly journalism executives who have the power to make change. And that's where I think we see our most, uh, most of our influence just by uh, asking a question uh, can prompt uh, some action. Uh, Just last week, for example, or maybe two weeks by now, The Women's Media Center uh, held uh, an award ceremony, and it was basically diverse people who were receiving the awards. And one of the first ones was to a young Native American uh, who is the uh, anchor of the TV show called Indian Country Today. So she started off by saying, um, why is it that there are no Native American anchors on any of the network news programs? Uh, you know, we exist too, and we have news. And so uh, I wrote about that and but in the process of writing about it, I asked the question myself of the very uh, people representing those networks, and the um, uh, the uh, director of the radio Television News Directors Association who represents not the networks themselves, but represents the, the broadcast industry and primarily local news media said, well, I don't know about what the networks are doing, but I will say this, that since we're in this reckoning, Native Americans definitely need to be included in that. And then I was able to point out uh, how uh, how the examples of some of the things that have taken place uh, that were off, off the mark because there were no Native American journalists. Uh, one was when we had all those shootings that mass shootings, the Pulse nightclub and one in Las Vegas and other places where the, um, anchors were saying, Oh, this is the deadliest mass shooting in history. And the native Americans were saying, I beg your pardon. <laughs> uh, in the last energy, I seem to remember a w- a wounded knee and all, a lot of these other mass shootings that took place and they gave us a list. And I fantasized, um, one of these anchors saying that and having a native American co-anchor, uh, Turning to him and saying, "Oh, really?" And uh, that's the kind of thing I think that um, uh, can can awaken consciousness, and where we could have um, you know most of our uh, most of our influence.
0: Yeah, I remember that the summer of two thousand sixteen. I think when media right. were widely saying this is the worst mass shooting in U.S. history, and thinking, right. "No, there were definitely worse massacres involving guns right. in U.S. history." And I definitely yes. remember yeah. consciously rewording that phrase, uh, aside from what mass media were saying at the time. So yeah, definitely right. important. When you look at where we are today, as far as diversity is concerned, I'm sure we could say that it's better than it has been in the past. But where are we lacking? Are we lacking in print? Are we lacking in broadcast? Are we, should we forget about these platforms and really just migrate more towards online, where it seems like a lot of young viewers and audiences are growing?
1: Well, a lot of young audiences are growing there, but uh, you can't beat having experience and competence and resources. Um, Social media is one thing, but a lot of what we see on social media is not firsthand reporting, but gossip and rumor and picking up what the mainstream media have uh, taken the time to report. That's why one of the one of the um, uh, most salient initiatives that has taken place is the, the move to to have people of color undertake investigative reporting where it takes time to dig and go through records um, and being able to sit there in the courtrooms and in houses. Uh, to find out what's going on in these state legislatures that we may not know about, uh, and I and you know the, the people on social media aren't doing that, um, and that's where we that's why we need to have attention um, focused uh, on people uh, news organizations that have the resources to do that kind of thing, and uh, one of the Nicole Hannah Jones, for example, is is, is very um, uh, well known right now uh for the 1619 project but she is also involved in in, uh, a project called the ida b wells society which is undertaking training of uh, people of color to be investigative reporters who can do that kind of digging uh and know you know how that's done uh and filing freedom of of information Mm -hmm. requests Um, and the the organization of uh, investigative reporters and editors now has a diversity person. Uh, so we're, we're sensitizing the people who can actually do real journalism. And I think that's, what's important. The other, like I say, the social media is fine. They can call things to our attention. Uh, but, but it's, you, you also need the people who can do the real digging and, and the real work, uh, of, of finding out what's going on that we don't know about.
0: We're winding down now. We're probably, we just have a minute left. I just wanted to ask you if you could give young journalists out there a message or some advice, what would it be?
1: It would be stay curious and learn those skills. Uh, Good writing, uh, no history, no geography, because even though the platforms are going to change over time, there are certain basics that will always be with us. You've got to learn how to be accurate in what you report, you got to have a good background as, as, so you can put things into context. And um, you've got to strive to be excellent.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Richard. And, you know, as with some great guests such as yourself, we could talk to you for another hour or so, but we're going to finish our podcast here. But before we go, we'd like to bestow our appreciation by making you an honorary member of the Capitol Press Club. And we hope right. that you become involved with us as we will become more involved in journalisms and the journalisms roundtable which you have once a month isn't that correct once a month
1: exactly our next one we uh, will, will be on January the 23rd so uh, people who, who won't be there on the zoom will can certainly watch on Facebook so we're trying to uh you know we, we want people to watch we want we, we we value the interaction
0: great and tell us your
1: website as well all right, it's journal journal-isms.isms.com.
0: I-S-M-S, All right, and we invite our audience members to visit our website as well at capitalpressclub.org. Also, check out our Facebook page and like us and follow us. And make sure that you stay in tune with Capital Press Club for more of our podcasts and upcoming events. Thanks, all of you, for watching. Take care, and we'll see you next time.